This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Land, Sea, and Sky. Since 1940, birders have turned to the optics experts at Land, Sea, and Sky to purchase just the right pair of binoculars for their birding adventures. The shop has hundreds of binoculars and spotting scopes in stock, an industry-leading 90-day return policy, and experienced staff to lend you a helping hand. If you'll be in Texas for spring migration, stop by their shop in Houston or visit them anytime at LandSeaSkyCo.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast. I am your host, Nate Swick, and I am in Israel for the champions of the flyway. Well, you know, not really right now as I record this introduction. I'm I'm actually currently sitting at home, but by the time you get this episode, assuming you download it and, and listen to it within, you know, a few days of its publication, I will be in Israel when you listen to it with the ABA Leica subital weed ears. As it turns out, while this team of college-age birders are two and individual exceptional birders, there's one thing they cannot do in Israel, and that is drive a rental car. They're not old enough to drive a rental car. The law says apparently you have to be 22 years old. None of them are. I am many years past that, so, you know, enter me to solve that problem. Twist my arm, I guess. It'll be like Baby Driver, you know, but the, but the opposite and with less crime. I assume perhaps the same number of binoculars, I guess. I, you know, I actually haven't seen that movie. They use binoculars in it, right? At least once. seems like criminals always use binoculars for stakeouts and, and stuff. But what that also means is that I'm going to be doing a lot of recording during our time there, and that will make its way into an upcoming podcast episode. So look forward to that. Uh, that will be the episode where I thank the people who donated to the Subadult Weed Ears and mentioned the podcast when they did so. So you've still got time to do that, by the way. I'll include the Just Giving link in the show notes if you want to get on that. i got plans for those people. <laughs> Big plans. Anyway, one of the more exciting aspects of this trip is, and I will, I will come out and say that I am probably you know, sort of odd for looking forward to this small thing on a trip that has me birding southern Israel during migration, but you know, I sort of get the feeling that I'm not alone with this. So my flight over to Israel takes me on a, a couple of stops, a couple of airports, Washington, D.C., meh, right? But also Munich, Bavaria, Germany, more, more interesting. So I have this fairly long layover during daylight hours, and I am perusing eBird to see my birding possibilities to add to my currently non-existent Germany list. Apparently, the Munich airport is surrounded by a nature sanctuary, so that's sort of promising, except that my layover is not quite long enough to be completely comfortable getting out of the airport through security and then in time to get back again. So fine, you know, I'm exploring the Munich airport website and looking at it on Google Earth and there are, there are a ton of trees around it, which seems sort of unusual for an airport. And bonus, it also has a park, an outdoor park, you know, ostensibly for children, but Anytime you can get outdoors, you can hear things and have an unimpeded view of the sky. That that has potential. I don't have to go through security. It's right there. So I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that I might be able to get ten or so birds there. Which not for nothing, uh, that would be my best haul at an airport ever. So I'll, I'll let you know how that works out. If any listeners out there have any good airport birding stories or airports that have been especially good for birding anywhere in the world, uh, hit me up on Twitter or at podcast.aba.org. I want to hear about it. I feel like there's I feel like there's something there. 
On the show today, we're talking status and distribution, S&D, with the new editors of the ABA journal, North American Birds, Mike Hudson and Tom Reed. We're going to focus primarily on the winter that was, so crossbills, Nazcaboobies, waterfowl, all that jazz. That is coming up right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of March 2018. Things are happening, finally. Spring is moving across the continent in fits and starts, but the birds are already on their way, and anytime you have birds moving around, you're going to have birds moving around the wrong way. It's just just the law of averages. From southeastern Arizona comes the news that the tufted flycatchers are back. This is an ABA Code 4 species, so pretty rare. Up until three or so years ago, this was a very unusual bird north of Mexico, and then something happened. Some pioneering individuals moved up into the mountains and canyons of Cochise County and have been coming back every year since, even attempting to nest last year. A pair of birds has been seen in Ramsey Canyon, site of that first nesting attempt, so fingers crossed they try again. And a third solo individual was seen at nearby Carr Canyon for a total of three birds in the ABA area at the same time. We have three firsts to report, including a real mindbender, that being a greater roadrunner photographed in Shelby County, Alabama. The question raised being, obviously, how does a bird that mostly stays on the ground get across the Mississippi River? Uh, the answer is probably some combination of shoulder shrugs and questioning noises, you know, maybe citing the gravitational pull of that yellow cardinal. But, you know, in reality, there are ways to cross without getting your feet wet, the most likely of which are rail bridges, followed perhaps by barges. It's worth noting that Greater Roadrunner has quietly expanded its range all the way to the Mississippi River in Arkansas and has been seen recently within sight of the river in that state. They are pushing, and it's not as impossible as it might seem that one or two might sneak over by any number of means. But that is up to the Alabama Bird Records Committee to determine now. A couple other incidences of western birds farther east than they should be. A Lawrence's goldfinch was photographed at a feeder in Comanche County, Oklahoma for a state first. This is a bird that is very disinclined toward vagrancy. Uh, It's the furthest east record so far as I can determine. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. A cool side note, evidently this feeder hosted all four species of North American uh, spinous finches at the same time. So all three goldfinches and pine siskin. Also in Georgia, a nice male mountain bluebird was found at the airport in Augusta, Georgia uh, for a state first. There's probably a master's joke in there somewhere, but I, I can't find it. To my point before, it goes to show that airports can offer pretty good birding at times. This is just a little bit of the rare bird picture for the period for all the latest vagrants from across the ABA area. Check out the ABA blog, blog.aba.org, every Friday morning. For more up-to-the-minute information on these and any other rare birds, join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare, or follow our dedicated rarity Twitter feed, at ABA Bird Alert. For birders interested in status and distribution, that is the where's and why's of birding, the ABA's quarterly journal, North American Birds, has always been a much-anticipated part of the ornithological canon. After a year or so in stasis, North American Birds is back under the charge of editors Mike Hudson of Baltimore, Maryland, and Tom Reed of Cape May, New Jersey. The much-anticipated Volume 70 came out earlier this year, and both of them are with me now for what I hope will be a seasonal thing on the podcast to talk a little about North American birds, but mostly about the winter that was in birding, trends we saw, what they mean, the benefit of a little bit of hindsight. So thanks for joining me, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. 
So uh, I want to start by congratulating you two for for getting out the first issue of the the new North American Birds in some time. Uh, has that project been as satisfying as you as you hoped it would be? We can start with Tom. Yeah, absolutely. For me, growing up in New Jersey, we had a great quarterly journal that really mirrored North American Birds uh, records of New Jersey birds. That really served as the initial motivating factor for me in studying status and distribution. Eventually, as I got older, stumbled onto North American Birds itself and became a regional editor in, in 2012. And when I was presented with the opportunity last year, it was absolutely one of those things that I just could not say no to. And sure, you know, I think anytime you have a, a big transition like, like we've had and Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hats off to to Ned Brinkley for the you know incredible job that he did with the journal for the last almost two decades. Uh, you know, you're gonna have some bumps in the road, and so it's taken us a little bit longer than maybe we would have liked to to get the first issue out. But I think we kind of got our sea legs now, and and we're really starting to to make some progress. So yeah, it's been it's been wonderful working with all the regional editors so far, associate editors. Um, ABA staff, you know, I think going forward, we're going to, a lot of good things happening with the journal for sure. Yeah, that's really exciting. How about you, Mike? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I have nothing too new from what Tom said, but, you know, I got, I have come at status and distribution from a similar background, a similar history. My Maryland, where I grew up, and then Delaware, the next state over, both have uh, really good summary journals that they put out of their records and the Hawkwatch reports and interesting trends and a couple other good articles of, of short local stuff. So, you know, when I found NAB and then when I, again, discovered that they, they were interested, NAB was interested in having me as one of the editors, it was a, a dream come true moment. It was a really, really awesome and natural thing for, for me to start doing and be interested in. I, I've been corresponding with the regional editors all this week, getting stuff ready for, for upcoming publications. And I've just been continually so pleased and almost taken aback sometimes by how committed and ready these guys all are to, to keep working with us and get everything rolling. Um, and that's really a wonderful thing to see that despite the fact that there was some, there's been some rockiness and there was that period of kind of everything moving very slowly, everyone's really, really ready to get going now, which is awesome. Let's start with a bird that sort of we expected to have continent-wide movements this year. It might not have turned out that way. Red Crossbill. You know, Ron Pittaway's much-anticipated winter fence report suggested that it might be a fair movement of these birds south and especially to the east. Did you guys see that pan out? Yeah, you know, the Red Crossbill thing has been has been quite fascinating. It does seem that, especially in the in the Midwest, and then, you know, pockets of the Northeast have really gotten into uh, into a good number of them. But, you know, you really, as with a lot of movements, the beginning of this was really last summer. I was working on the Wisconsin Breeding Bird Atlas in June and started to encounter red crossbills in uh, throughout the state, where you normally uh, in places you, you wouldn't see them. So the you know the movement really started in June. In some places, it peaked movement-wise, you know, along the Western Great Lakes, July, August, and then again later into the fall. Yeah, certainly there was there was areas that that seemed to have good numbers through the winter. Uh, I would say, as you got farther east, it seemed that there were pockets that were a bit more limited, and I think a really good cone crop in parts of the interior northeast prevented birds from from getting south along the east coast. I think now, you know, actually just returned from northeast Minnesota last week, and there's now red crossbills that are are setting up shop and are are breeding. 
all through the state of Wisconsin, all through parts of Minnesota now. Uh, so it's it's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, one of the more um, kind of interesting aspects of red crossbills or looking at red crossbills is this idea of that you're you're trying to pick up these different types. It seems like whenever there's a lot of movement of red crossbills, we get these these groups of birds that, that are coming from the west, moving east and, and moving southward. Did you see any sort of unusual types showing up in, in sort of unlikely places this year? I think one of the, the more notable things that happened with this was the appearance of a few type fives. And which, one, which ones are those? Yeah, the, type, the top fives are, are another one of the far western ones. Type five is from western U.S. and Canada, and it's mostly a... Um, a lodgepole pine and spruce specialist. Yeah, so we had some type fives that showed up in the upper Midwest, I guess late summer and then a few more in the fall. There's previously very few records, I guess east of the Rockies, east of the Mississippi, mm-hmm. uh, for sure, of, of type fives. So that was one of the more uh, interesting developments. Um, but yeah, I think just the, the overall diversity of types in some of the movements was pretty fascinating. There were mornings, I know from from experience last fall on, on the north side of, of Lake Superior, where we would have uh, type twos, threes, fours, and tens, uh, all on the same morning, you know, in September and, and early October moving. Yeah, there was, uh, it was certainly quite interesting on in that regard. So another bird that has sort of been interesting this past winter has been the long-staying Nazca boobies in in Southern California, that is obviously a, that is a bird that was unheard of in the AVA area for a very long time. And now all of a sudden, it's not only regular, but these birds are sticking around for a long time. What do you think might have caused something like this? I, I do think this one is a really interesting one because of exactly what you were saying. It's it's uh, was, was sort of big and exciting news when they appeared on the scene. And then now they've, they've set this kind of interesting... Um, interesting thing where they're, they're hanging out they're, They've, they've stayed kind of in a, uh, a relatively small area, but they're hanging out for an extended period of time. Uh, one thing that I was noticing is I was just kind of reading through some stuff about them the other night and looking at where other sightings are occurring is, um, this isn't, and we, we kind of maybe shouldn't expect this to be limited to the U S but it's really not. There's other, other birds showing up well outside their range all through, uh, the southwest, the western coast of Mexico and um, Central America. So, and, and this appears to kind of be a thing they do if you look at historical records. There, there, obviously, they weren't reaching the U.S. until relatively recently, but there were periods where they would kind of seem to to head north um, and and west. To some extent, this is this is one of those things that because it's relatively new, we probably don't have a great idea of what's going on big scale yet. We know with a lot of these sort of Pacific seabirds, especially ones that hang out in um, in currents kind of around the Galapagos and off the the southern half of Central America, where where these kind of um, currents are very El Nino, La Nina driven, that it has something to do with that. That it has something to do with the oscillations as they are um, and their interactions with sea surface temperature and all that good stuff. So I think that it's it's very tempting and may very well have something to do with that. But I think that at least that for us to know accurately, we're going to have to give this more time. And also to see, you know, how long do these birds that are lingering here actually stay in the end? Are they, are they really just dispersing? Do they seem to be just heading out and then they'll clear out from all these areas, the, the California, Baja, California, Mexico, all of that all at once? Or will they kind of 
goes slowly? Will it be a more extended thing? Will they seem to kind of have been driven in a more permanent way up? Um, so it, it, that, that's going to be a fun one to follow and an interesting one to follow. I think it, it's likely it has something to do with these Pacific uh, currents, but you know we'll, we'll kind of have to see on that. Nazca Bubi is obviously the most interesting because they're sticking around, but yeah, there there have been a lot of these sort of Humboldt current birds. A weird a weird influx of these Humboldt current birds late last fall, and and with the Nazca Bubi sticking around, I, I think it speaks to in some ways how we're still as much as we think we understand the La Nina and El Nino events. I think that this speaks to how there's still a lot of it that maybe we're we're still kind of trying to get our hands around because. What at least a lot of birders have in their minds and a lot of people in general, I think, have in their mind is it's the strong events. It's the strong El Ninos that create the really dramatic weather patterns that we think of as having the big effects. And that's not what this seems to be. These are, are much weaker patterns. Um, the La Nina sort of event that we're in now has been sort of in place for a while. It's been a, it's a relatively weak one. It's creating um, just barely below average sea surface temperatures. And so it's not the kind of thing that maybe in our minds we think, oh, this should have some big outlandish effect. But maybe it is, or maybe maybe that also points to something else going on that we may not be fully aware of yet. Nazcobubi is one species of southern bird that's sort of moved up, that pelagic species. But we've also seen a lot of terrestrial species kind of moving northward in the last few years, a rufusbeck robin is a really good example. That was a bird that, you know, no more than decade, decade and a half ago was a really considered a really good bird in Arizona. And now, you know, that we're seeing multiple birds showing up every year. Uh, it's sort of similar to what we've seen with clay colored, clay colored thrush in, in Southern Texas as well. Um, is this sort of a, uh, uh, is this a trend of us seeing these sort of Sonoran Western Mexico birds kind of moving up into Arizona? And not just that, but, you know, tufted flycatcher just the other day, the tufted flycatchers returned to Southeastern Arizona again and looked like they might even try to nest again. What might be the mechanism for this and, and what other birds could we potentially expect to see? You know, I think that's, I think that's quite interesting. I will, I will fully admit to, to being an East coaster, not having the, the fullest grasp on, on what might be bringing some of these birds up out of northern Mexico there. But yeah, you, you look at Rufus back robin, certainly this, this year there's locations with upwards of three, four, five individuals. So it certainly does seem like there's, there's something amiss there. You know, I always wonder when we look at changes in, assumed ch changes in status and distribution, obviously some of that is... In, in many cases, large-scale things that are happening. You know, we look at things like crested caracaras. You know, they're big, they're obvious. You know, as these things begin to show up in the, on the East Coast and all the way up into Canada, we understand that there is there's something new there. You know, with some of the birds in Southeast Arizona, I've always wondered, obviously there are some changes occurring, but it's such a vast area. And there's so many places that, that birders never get into. Yeah, that's a great point. That you really do have to wonder to a degree how how much of this is new and how much of it is simply new to us. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I think you know along the same lines as the as the Nazca boobies, it's it's something where over time, you know, we'll we'll certainly learn more. But I think on a on a macro level, I think we always have to take into account as things change how much of that is is sort of a improvement on our end and how. You know, how skilled birders are, how many birders there are. 
our ability to quickly document birds now. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot to be said there, but a lot that, that no doubt still has to, has to be figured out. It was, a, it was another very cold winter uh, in parts of the East Coast. Um, whenever the Great Lakes tend to freeze up, it tends to mean that a lot of waterfowl are going to move south, like GoldenEye and Common Merganser and Scoter and whatnot, and sometimes unusual things as well. Uh, we certainly had a lot of tufted duck this year in places that were sort of unexpected, and pink-footed goose. Do you feel like there are more of these species showing up in the ABA area, or is it just that birders are getting better at finding and documenting these things? I think I think that um, it's a little bit of both, probably. I think that especially we can look at pink-footed goose as an example of um, actual increases in vagrancy or changes in vagrancy patterns. It, it's thrown around in the in discussion all the time that pink-footed goose is seeing expansions in its population and range, and um, that has generally corresponded to the to the increase in vagrancy that we've seen out here. Um, but that doesn't hold up across all species. And, you know, I was looking just for my own curiosity, getting ready for this last night, I was looking up at some stuff about barnacle goose, um, which has seen really very little change in the overall patterns, um, it, or at least the patterns of the distribution of those records. And um, Tufted Duck up until maybe this year <laughs> had been rather the same way. So I think that we have to look at both of these. I think we, we maybe want to consider that in some species, in some cases, we are looking at genuine changes. Um, but in a lot of cases, I think it's more birders out looking for them and, and what Tom was alluding to before in that better documentation of them. So many more birders have are clued in to the importance of documenting these records and have you know easy ways of doing so that we're probably seeing some of that effect happening here as well. Uh, we, we talk about, I mean, we're all East Coast birders, so I, I try not to have an East Coast bias, but we've been seeing a lot of tufted duck in the East. They've been seeing them in the West as well. There was one just the other day in, uh, in Idaho. Um, do you think the mechanisms that are causing this increase in the Eastern ones are the same as the Western ones? Are they both coming from the same source population? Are they coming from both sides of Eurasia? Or is it just that people are, are more, are, are seeing these in more places more, as you said, people are better at documenting things? I, I will, I will perfectly admit to, to tufted duck being a species I don't have an intimate knowledge with. Um, however, I do, I do know just from other species, including some other waterfowl that have, you know, East Coast and West Coast records, that, that oftentimes it's thought they're not coming from the same source populations. Oftentimes um, they may be coming from even within, you know, the East and the West, there might be multiple things at work, you know, in Southern California records versus ones in the Pacific Northwest and, and whatnot. So I think that, uh, again, to, we, we, we shouldn't discount that there's something bigger going on in this case. We shouldn't discount that, you know, throughout the Tufted Duck range this year, maybe something's going on that's creating widespread dispersals like this. But given that we're, we're probably working with multiple, not just two, not just an Eastern source and a Western source, but maybe multiple even within each of those regions, that that also points, I think, especially to to possibly the the more birders and better birders effect going on here. As we are kind of putting together the winter season that just passed, obviously a lot of questions still out there. There are some things that we might start looking for as the spring comes on. Tom, you, you sent me a list of some things that you were sort of interested in as, as birds start moving again. What are some things that you think birders should be on the lookout for in the spring that might be interesting? I think as always, there's, there's a number of, 
pretty interesting things to, to look at here. One, the current forecast for La Nina is for it to, to weaken uh, quite likely through the, through the spring and then into the summer. So we'll see if, the, if that will create sort of some different patterns weather-wise, which may uh, help or, or hurt movements of migrants uh, in various places. You know, on a more localized level, I think one of the more interesting southbound movement events of, of last fall was, was rough-legged hawk. Uh, some places in the Midwest had some very big movements of, of rough legs, and we'll have to see in another probably four to six weeks or so if there's you know, a big return flight. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, one of the, the big benefits is that there are a number of hawk watch sites all across the Great Lakes in the spring, and and so we should have a pretty good feel for whether that happens. But um, so that's that'll be an interesting thing to see. One of the kind of interesting storylines from last fall in parts of the East was a complete lack of black pole warblers. Massachusetts, New Jersey, um, you know, places where you see uh, uh, typically a number of black pole warblers in the fall. It seemed that they were they were really missing. So it's going to be interesting to see this spring. Folks also kind of throughout the East see a lack of black pole warblers, or if it was simply that they did something different last fall on their way south. So that's going to be, I think, come May, it'll be a very interesting thing to, to see play out. And uh, yeah, of course, you know, the, the thread on boobies, you know, here in the, in the Atlantic, seemingly random, random appearance of, of brown boobies anywhere in the, in the East. And and I was rather shocked to hear last yeah. week that there was a, a young brown booby that had shown up on the, the northern end of the New Jersey coast, I think on February 25th or so. So we are, we're, all, <laughs> we're already seeing them come up this year. Yeah, that's been a good thread for the last uh, couple of years of those things just, just turning up. They are bizarre that way. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing. Well, well, we'll have to have you guys back in a few months to see how the, the spring shakes out. Mike Hudson and Tom Reed are the editors of ABA's North American Birds Quarterly, the journal of record for birders interested in status and distribution. If you are interested in subscribing, you can get more information at aba.org slash NAB. Thanks, guys. I hope you have a great spring. Thanks so much for having us on. Thanks, Nate. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you want to help support this podcast and the birding community in the U.S. and Canada, please join the ABA. Members get a lot of great benefits, plus the knowledge that you are helping to promote a better birding community throughout North America and beyond. And make sure to say that the podcast sent you if you want to make me look really good. You can do that at aba.org slash join. Special thanks to Sean Smith of Davis, California, Eugene Hill of Thornton, Colorado, and David Taylor of Dover, Pennsylvania, all of whom joined or renewed their membership and noted the podcast as a reason. Thanks to all of you and welcome to the ABA, again, in at least one case. You can participate in our anonymous demographic survey at the link in the show notes. Yes, it does ask for your email, but no, that is not required, nor is it connected to your information. Thanks in advance for that. You can leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love hearing your comments and the ratings help people find us. Thank you for that. Executive producer of the American Birding Podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. Most common in the Mid-Atlantic, he has a strong pattern of vagrancy around most parts of the ABA area with increasing records in all parts of the world. Definitely one to watch for. 
Technical production is by John Lowry. He's generally found in the Great Lakes with seasonal movements to various ABA area birding festivals. Quite hardy, though, will endure difficult winters and is not inclined to be pushed south by inclement weather. Extra help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese. One is a Central California specialty, the other more commonly encountered in the Western Great Lakes, often in the presence of gulls. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We are shockingly an ABA area endemic, though one that can be found throughout the region. We have also recently been discovered in Hawaii, which is very unusual. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.